Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Hello, Eva Wiener. It is my privilege and my honor to welcome you to this episode of Extraordinary People. And Eva Wiener, I consider a friend and certainly a, a a very special individual. Eva is a Holocaust survivor, and she was on the uh, St. Louis ship that was turned away um, by Cuba and the United States, and uh, thankfully um, found a home and made her way here. I don't want to give away too much, but Eva, welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. (laughs) Good, good. Let's begin. I have so many questions for you. I don't know where to go first, but why don't we begin with um, your your background? Uh, You were, I believe, the youngest one on board the ship. The youngest girl. The youngest girl. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I found out later that there was a, a, a boy on the ship who was two months younger than I. Okay. All right. So tell so I, us. My distinction is is as a girl. Yes. Okay. Well, you know that's fine. Um, the uh, tell us um, what um, you know. Take us back. Obviously, your memory doesn't go there, but um, take us back to the situation uh, that your parents faced um, at the time. Okay. Um, yes, I was too young to have any. Uh, conscious recollection of the trip itself, but I was fortunate in that my parents shared with me their stories and their uh, experiences as well as uh, the emotional involvement. Uh, so I'm, I'm fortunate that they did give me the story uh, and I can tell it from their perspective. Uh, when my parents met in Berlin, uh, they had been immigrants. Both families had moved to Berlin from Poland in early 1900s, and they met in Berlin and were married there, but by the time they they got married, things in, in Germany were uh, difficult for Jews, to say the least. Uh, this was in 1936. Uh, they met, they married in 1937, and I was born in 1938. Uh, by that time, Hitler was in power. The Nuremberg Laws were in effect where Uh, It was difficult for Jews to uh, earn a living uh, because they were forbidden to be in certain um, professions and deal with the non-Jewish population. So they tried desperately to find ways to get out of uh, Germany. Uh, Some of my father's family was fortunate enough to be able to leave and go to uh, what was then Palestine, now the state of Israel. And my mother's two sisters were able to come to America. And her brother had gone to Havana, Cuba. My mother, uh, my father was taken out of the uh, apartment, forcibly put on a train. This was shortly after Kristallnacht. Was put on a train back to Warsaw. 
where they were sending people to what they called the, their country of origin uh, because he was born in Poland. That's where he was being sent with hundreds of other men, uh, finding himself in a one-bedroom apartment sharing it with 12 other men, uh, trying desperately to find out how to get his wife and baby, which was me, out of Germany. My mother was able to procure a visa to a place called Siam, now Thailand. And thereby, my father was able to make his way back from Poland to join her on the condition they leave for Thailand, or Siam at the time, immediately. In the interim, my mother had also asked my uncle in Cuba to purchase a visa to his country. Um, obviously, the purpose of which was to get to America, since that was the right part of the world. Um, and the, the visa for Cuba came while my father was in transit from Poland back to Germany. She was able to book passage on a ship called the Boy, uh, St. Louis, was owned by the um, Hamburg America Line. My father came back to Berlin, uh, joined my mother and me, packed what small suitcases they were permitted to take, only one per person, and we boarded a train from Berlin to Hamburg where we were to meet the MS St. Louis. That's basically how we got onto this fateful voyage. From what you know, because obviously um, uh, I know that you know the background of this, you've done uh, the research, this is really your story. Um, how long was the trip? And um, what did your parents say um, about that voyage and about what happened when they reached their destination? Well, the trip itself, uh, basically from Hamburg to Havana, was wonderful. They raved about the beautiful uh, parties and dances and movies that they showed. Uh, there was a, it was a true cruise ship with, with shuffleboard and a uh, swimming pool on deck, and, and it was a very festive time because these 937 Jewish passengers were obviously on their way to what they considered a favorable destination and away from the persecution in Berlin, or in Germany in particular. Um, the cruise itself was wonderful. The shock came when we got to Havana Harbor and were not permitted to disembark. Yes. So um, then you had to go to Plan B okay. and head for the United States. So tell us well, what happened there. Well, we were in Havana Harbor for quite a while, and there was a lot of negotiation going on. And they tried to negotiate with the president of Cuba, who uh, adamantly uh, disavowed our papers. He, he, he declared them to be null and void, and uh, basically was told by the Nazi agents who were, who were in his uh, midst that he would not allow us to disembark. And he had no problem with not allowing us, and 
depicting us as being uh, non not welcome in his Cuba. So the captain then decided, since we were only 90 miles off the coast of Miami, he would turn the ship around and try to land the ship in Miami. Getting close enough to Miami to actually, as my father used to say, we almost could read the license plates on the taxis on Ocean Avenue. That's how close we were to Miami. But the minute that happened, the United States Coast Guard came out and threw us out of American waters. Mm. They did not want us anywhere near the the United States coastline, expecting possibly someone might try to jump board, jump uh, off the ship and try to swim ashore. Mm. Uh, so that caused a lot of panic. The captain and a passenger committee, which had been uh, selected, started contacting all the countries in the world, basically begging and pleading for anyone to take us. The captain was adamant and told the passengers that under no circumstances would he bring his passengers back to Germany because he knew what their fate would be. Uh, He threatened to even beach the ship anywhere, even on the British coast, if necessary, uh, just not to have to bring his passengers back to their terrible fate in Germany. He was a hero. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No question. My mother used to call him our savior. Yes. So ultimately, you went back to Europe. So what happened to your family at that point? Well, on the the trip back, of course, things were terrible on the ship. Uh, Life was not the cruise ship it was on the way over. And they were still contacting many countries in the world. Uh, asking for asylum. And while we were traveling, four countries did agree to take some of the passengers. Not one country ever said that I'll take all 900 people. Um, But the passenger list was then divided into four sections, assigning the passengers to each of the four countries. My father, in his inimitable wisdom, begged and pleaded to be put on the list for England. How did he come to that uh, decision? Many years later, I asked him that question, (laughs) because actually when the ship docked in Europe, it docked in Antwerp, Belgium, and on the dock stood my aunt and uncle and their baby to greet us. So I would ask my father, why didn't you select Belgium? After all, you had a sister living there. His... uh, Decision was made that he wanted to be as far away from Germany as conceivably possible. Mm -hmm. And of the four countries, England was the furthest. And he was hoping that the English Channel would be some kind of a buffer between England and Germany, not knowing that it would be the only country that ever fought against the Nazis. Right. uh, Smart decision, though. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. As I say, my father was an extremely wise man. Uh, but his intuition was even one, more wonderful than his, his uh, actually his uh, knowledge. So uh, he used it wisely. Yes. So um, you dock there, you, you begin a new life in uh, London. Um, can uh, you tell us 
um, what came of, because not everybody knows this story, even though it's, um, it's a book, a very famous book. You could talk a little bit about that. But what happened um, to the others? Well, if they were not able to leave their countries immediately, uh, and some fortunately were able to get uh, transportation out of those four, uh, three countries on continental Europe, but many of those that went to the three countries did not survive. Uh, Belgium and Holland were invaded by the Nazi troops within weeks, and others within months, and many of them got uh, trapped in the Nazi invasions and were certainly um, in a lot more difficult position than I was in England. Uh, Living in London, we had difficulties, no question, because the Nazis were bombing us almost daily, uh, mostly at night, and many homes were destroyed and as were ours, and we had to move many times. And living in bomb shelters for a good part of my childhood was not easy, mm-hmm. but not anything in comparison to what my life had, would have been had we gone to Belgium, Holland, or France. The aunt, for example, that met us on the dock in Antwerp, she and her husband and baby died in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was to say the least, uh, difficult for all those that went to those other countries. And of the three, we were the luckiest. How many were there that actually ended up in uh, in England? Um, I believe the figure is 280, some odd, uh, mm-hmm. close to that. I'm so. not sure the exact figure, but it was in that vicinity. Uh, and when the statistics are are announced, they do not even include those passengers that were in England, because obviously we were the safest of all. There is a book out um, that you're familiar with. You, you want to um, mention that? My father uh, used to read a, daily, a, a weekly newspaper that was published specifically for the German-Jewish audience. It was called Aufbau. And in there was a... Uh, classified ad asking for survivors of the St. Louis. My father read it, and we then corresponded with the authors of a book called Voyage of the Damned. The book became a film uh, made in Hollywood and very, very uh, well-received with some very big stars uh, in the cast. And it actually brought to light the significance of the ship. Because for most of my life, I never considered myself a survivor of the Holocaust, only because I did not have any of the signals that would classify me as a survivor. I wasn't a hidden child. I didn't have a go to a concentration camp. I didn't have the, the uh, signals that would call me a survivor. But then when I realized the significance of the ship and what it meant as a preamble to the, to the Holocaust, I realized that I was part of history and had a message that here was a ship selected by the Nazi party 
to show the world that these Jewish passengers were expendable. No one really cared what happened to them. Look, Cuba didn't want to take them. America doesn't want them. Nobody wants them. We'll do the world a favor and destroy them and eliminate them for you. And no one will care. Hmm. So that the ship then, and its story as part of the book, became my lesson in what I had, end- had endured uh, actually surreptitiously. Uh, but then I realized that the message that it would teach to the next generation was that hate and bigotry and prejudice and anti-Semitism can create a situation like the denial of a ship to a safe port. Yes. Um, so uh, it's, it is an important message. Um, and, and it reflects on um, those times. We are in a different time now. And um, I think that your role nowadays is really in some ways more important than ever. But before we talk about that, um, what memories do you have of your life in England? And how did you happen to come upon, um, you know, moving to the United States? And tell us a little bit about your life and the family you've created here. Well, um, life in England was difficult, to say the least. My parents knew no English. Coming to a foreign country, they had to first learn the language. Uh, My father, fortunately, uh, his family had a bakery in Berlin so that he was an accomplished baker uh, and very much in demand. So he was able to get, uh, get a job working as a baker, which worked mostly at night. Of course, you had to get fresh bread for the morning. Uh, and most of the air raids took place at night. Therefore, my mother was basically in charge of taking me to the public shelter, which was a nightmare in itself. Mm-hmm. It was a, a little brick building, uh, supposed to house 50 people and used to uh, squeeze in like sardines, probably close to 200. You could stay there for an hour or two, or possibly even eight hours, depending on how long the air raid lasted. Uh, you stayed until the all clear was signals uh, came across, and you were finally able to leave the shelter and never know what you were going to come out seeing, how many buildings around you were destroyed. And my father had a difficult time because when he would come home from work in the morning and the shelter was evacuated as was much of the neighborhood because bombs fell in the area. He spent many hours searching for us in the system, uh, not knowing Mm -hmm. if we had been caught up in this bombing or not. Uh, So life in England was difficult, to say the least. Um, But it was certainly not much worse than the Brits had experienced for the whole bombing episodes. Some of the blitzes were worse than others. I know for a short period of time, my parents decided to leave London to go to a suburb in Manchester, hoping that that the bombing would be not as severe 
But unfortunately, that didn't last very long because they bombed Manchester as well. Um, then coming to America, we um, actually, my parents had a choice of going either to Palestine or to the United States. My father's family was there in Palestine. My mother's here in America. My mother won the debate and decided to come to be with her sisters. Uh, the ship docked in New York at the end of May in 1946 after the war. We came to New York on Memorial Day weekend and unfortunately there was a dock strike and we weren't able to leave the ship immediately, which was a little bit frightening. But fortunately, the dock strike was over at the end of the weekend. Um, I came to America with this, I say, child's idea of what a free country was. And uh, my idea of a free country was when I went with my mother to the grocery store, I started taking food off the shelves. My mother became hysterical. <laughs> I said, it's a free country, Ma. Not everything is so, free, though. <laughs> exactly. My right. perception of a free country mm -hmm. was obviously a little bit different than what was sure. meant by it. Sure. My uh, parents so, were surprised that the streets weren't actually paved in gold, I think. In gold, you know. yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. That was, the, that was what everybody thought, that especially New York streets yes. were play, paved in gold, yes. yes. Uh, my father found it difficult in the beginning to find employment. Uh, we were able to live with my aunt in New York. She had an apartment, and we had a, a bedroom that my parents and I shared until we could get our own flat. But we adjusted. Fortunately, um, my parents were extremely optimistic at every turn and felt that there was a reason for them to have been saved. And my father and mother were both extremely observant in their Judaism and believed wholeheartedly that there was a reason for it all. It's interesting that you would say that because, um, you know, I am a child of survivors as well, and yes. um, my parents it's, were optimistic. Two wonderful books, by the way. Oh, thank you. But my parents were were um, optimistic people as well, and I think you almost have to be um, to keep going and make something of yourself. You know, you create that um, that that atmosphere, that situation that you want to see happen. And, and it does happen. So that I think that's, that's an interesting point that you make there. Yes. Um, I went on to actually spend a great deal of time at the Jersey Shore because my other aunt, my mother's other sister, had settled in Belmar, New Jersey. So I spent most of my holidays and summers in Belmar and ended up marrying a guy from Belmar, who okay. was a lifeguard on the beach. Ah. Um, born, <laughs> born in this country. Born in this, actually his mother was also born in this country. Ah. And his father came to America at age four. So he was second generation American. I see. 
but uh, we, we lived and still do at the Jersey Shore. I have two wonderful daughters, a fantastic son-in-law, and two amazing grandchildren. Of course, of course. <laughs> and the last 20 years of my employment was spent working for the United States government Department of Defense. Mm. Okay. Very interesting. Um, I, I think I just want to comment on one of the uh, things that you said earlier about life in England, um, which certainly, as you said, cannot compare to the to the turmoils that um, you know was happening uh, back in in Germany and Poland and those places. But um, but that it wasn't easy. We don't hear that much about um, you know uh, what was going on. Um, during that wartime in a place like England. And, mm. you know, you do bring that to light. So, mm. um, Eva, at, at what point did you decide to speak about um, your background um, to, to get that message out there? Because there are a lot of Holocaust survivors, and granted, you were, you were really very young. You didn't quite undergo some of the things that others did. But um, even so, um, you know, s- some of the Holocaust survivors understandably wanted to put that situation behind them because it was just too painful what? Why did you make that decision to talk about what has happened to you? Well, primarily for what you just said, because so many survivors are unable or not here anymore or physically cannot delve into those traumas. And I felt that mine, although traumatic to a point, had a message for the next generation. Basically, when the movie and the book came out is when I realized that I was part of something that was so crucial to explaining the Shoah, to explaining the Holocaust, and how it happened and why. That these 900 passengers wanted nothing else but to find a safe haven because they were being persecuted. They had to find a place where they could live in peace and were denied that simply because they were Jews. But although the Shoah began with the the, the destruction of the Jewish people, it never stops there. It always permeates other people. And in fact, we know that the figures that we use are 6 million Jews and 5 million others, where 11 million people were destroyed just because they were different. Different religion, disabled, for whatever reason, they did not fit into the stereotype of the, of the advancing military. I felt that from my perspective, I could teach, especially children, what hate and bigotry can lead to if not kept under, you know, kept, kept, or eliminated, let's put it that way. And that 
each individual, much like our captain, has to stand up and be counted when they see something going on that is obviously destructive. That's when I decided, it, you know, it, since I do have a message, that it's important for me to share it. Have you have? How long have you been um, speaking out? Um, it's been about twenty or more years, more than twenty years now. Really, I started doing it intensely when I retired from my job and had more time at my disposal. Um, so it's been over twenty years now that I've been doing it, and I'm I'm deeply gratified that I'm able. Um, I was able to speak to a wonderful group just two weeks ago in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University, where we had an audience of of over 400 people, 250 or more with students. And that is my reward. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I know um, a couple of years ago, you were at um, our college, Middlesex County College in Edison, and um, truly such a magnetic speaker. Um, The students were mesmerized by the story. And, um, and you know, this remains, I think, more important than ever. I wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening in this country right now as vis-a-vis uh, immigration and the wall and so forth. And um, also the second part of this, because you do have a unique, very personal uh, perspective of this, um, is that um, what do you think uh, about the fact that so many young people do not know anything about the Holocaust. Um, I'd like I'd like you to speak on that. I'll speak on your last comment first, because it irks me to no end that only eleven states in the United States mandate Holocaust education. That's criminal. It should be mandatory in every state of the union. And even those states that mandate it sometimes only allow a paragraph or two about the Holocaust. That, to me, is a lesson lost. It is important for our students today to know what led to the Holocaust, what happened there, and its aftermath and how genocides are even happening today, where we have not really learned our lesson. We have the genocide in Syria, Cambodia, Rwanda. I I can go on. There are genocides happening as we speak. And it is so heartbreaking that these kids do not know about these events. Now, you talk about immigration. Um, many universities are now adding a, an immigration st- uh, course uh, studying the events of immigration throughout history. And I've been privileged to speak to some of those classes. 
and compare my situation in 1939 to today's events. My opinion, and it's all personal, is that we are the greatest country in the world with the most land and opportunity. If we deny truth seekers of asylum, if we deny a safe haven for those seeking that kind of an opportunity, we might just as well take the Statue of Liberty out of of Bedloe's Island. She does not have any significance anymore. I understand today's society is different than it was in 39. And we have to be careful about investigating, vetting our immigrants. But anyone who has truly expressed the desire for freedom, we have no right to deny that. Eva, I think I think you've uh, already answered my last question, which is, was, what does America mean to you? And um, I think too many of us forget that, um, that America is uh, still a beacon in this world, and we want, we hope that it will remain so. I think, certainly hope so. Yes, yes. And I think um, your message is the most important message. And I hope you have many, many more years of spreading this message to us at a time. From your mouth to God's ears. Okay, good. And Eva, thank you so very much for um, this uh, talk today. And um, I just wish you all the best and wishing our country all the best as well. So thank you, Eva. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Extraordinary People.